the Johnson & Johnson vaccine developed from aborted fetal cell lines? It is a question many of you have asked the Verify team after the Catholic Church issued a statement warning Catholics the J&J shot is morally compromised. Investigative reporter Cheryl Mercedes finds out. The U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops and Committee on Pro-Life Activities blasted the statement online and on social media. It said in part, The Johnson & Johnson vaccine was tested and is produced with abortion-derived cell lines, raising moral concerns. Therefore, if one has the ability to choose a vaccine, Pfizer or Moderna's vaccines should be chosen over Johnson & Johnson. Miss Adams, Victoria and several others asked the Verify team, did Johnson & Johnson use cells derived decades ago from an abortion to create the vaccine? We have three sources for this. The U.S. Bishops Conference, Johnson & Johnson and Dr. Amish Adalja, senior scholar at Johns Hopkins who treats infectious disease, critical care and emergency patients and also works on pandemic policy. The vaccine itself does not include it any kind of fetal cells. However, the vaccine is manufactured using fetal cells, as is the AstraZeneca vaccine. What does that mean? Were these aborted fetuses from the 70s and 80s, as some are alleging? Yes, uh, the, the origin of these cell lines are from aborted fetuses. Johnson & Johnson issued a statement to the Verify team saying, in part, there is no fetal tissue in our Janssen COVID-19 vaccine. Our COVID-19 vaccine is an inactivated, non-infective, endovirus vector similar to a cold virus, which codes for the coronavirus spike protein. So where do the aborted fetal cells come in? Dr. Adalja explains they were used to produce the adenovirus vector. And what happens is they grow the virus through those cells. They then harvest the virus, filter all of that material. And what you get in your vaccine is actually the, the virus that's been engineered. Dr. Adalja says while the COVID-19 vaccine is getting a lot of attention right now, Fetal cell lines are used to make many vaccines. For example, the chickenpox vaccine, the shingles vaccine, the hepatitis A vaccine, the rubella vaccine, one of the rabies vaccines all use fetal cells, so this is nothing new. So we can verify that Johnson & Johnson did use aborted fetal cells in its creation of the COVID-19 vaccine. Dr. Adalja added, fetal cells play an important role in the development of life-saving enhancements. He tells me he has full confidence in the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. Hello there. You might want to pull up a chair. I really don't get the idea you might want to have any snacks today. Um, after talking about the uh, soylent green and the snacks made out of humans, I thought, well, why not tackle the subject of cannibals? There's a lot going on as far as cannibalism these days, and I explain in another segment why today I'm talking about cannibalism. Other than, well, interesting thing to talk about, right? Probably one of the more revolting things that a person could think about doing, eating another person. And uh, yeah, kind of weak evidence, but I'll leave that up to you to decide. But I don't want to bury the lead because um, I'm not really sure that uh, people really eat other people. But let's have a talk about it today. But really, these doctors we have running things, I mean, they've, they've 
suggested a lot of dangerous things now, haven't they? Uh, they've done, they, they always do these things and then do studies later is how it seems to work out to me. So I personally don't have a lot of trust for doctors. Uh, just recently, I don't know, in the last few weeks, they came out and said that, you know, those antidepressants, you know, the pills that made me handicapped and crippled, well, whoops, serotonin in our brains really isn't true. I guess in the 70s they just flat out made that up. I am convinced of this, and I have to still think about it some more. You know, everybody in this country is always yelling, uh, we got to have free medical care in this country. Why don't we have it? Every other country has it. Why doesn't the United States pay for its citizens' medical care? Well, think about it this way. Medical care is more expensive here. I'm not going to get into all that stuff. It's more expensive in this country even though the drugs are developed in this country typically. But here's what I think. It's a possibility. Sounds like a pretty strong possibility. Um, right now, Tavistock over in the UK, our fellow citizens, <laughs> top of the morning to you there in the UK. You never thought you'd have us as cousins, did you? <laughs> so anyway, so uh, Tavistock's in trouble because of all this gender stuff, these gender surgeries and stuff, and what's going on, not going to get into it in detail, but just type in Tavistock gender. <laughs> They're getting their tails sued off for getting these kids' hormones and changing, trying to change their sexes and basically destroying their lives. So how'd they get that done? Well, maybe they were able to get that done because our cousins over in the UK have their national, I always get them confused, national health you have your national health in the UK, okay? So what that means is you can go into the government database and probably track a lot of these things a little bit easier, right? But if you're like this country and you have these surgeries and stuff spread out around all these different states, all these different hospitals, all these different insurance agencies, probably a lot harder to gather data. So I'm just a little bit suspect of all of this because they have a very convenient way of doing these things and then later saying, well, didn't work out too well. Because, for example, besides the serotonin deal, let's not forget the opioid deal, I released a couple shows that I did on opioids over on YouTube, the Sackler family and the opioids. It's basically using uh, mass murder with the convenience of a pen versus a gun, right? And so they have this history of these things. So. I'm kind of seeing this cannibalism as something they're doing just to try to trick and create a lot of fear in us. And um, never forget, actual people write these things, so pretty sick people we're dealing with here. Because really, in the 1880s, the former Surgeon General, this person named William A. Hammond, claimed that cocaine habits were no different than tea or coffee habits, and that patients could quit cold turkey. By the 1900s, Americans could walk into any pharmacy and purchase a gram of pure cocaine for 25 cents. Cocaine was one of the country's fifth best-selling pharmaceuticals that year. That was 1880s, 1900s, excuse me. So yeah, and then I think it was around 1914 they outlawed cocaine. So yeah, we've been we've been introduced to a heck of a lot of things, which keeps leading me back to this couple hundred-year time. This thing is just way too screwed up to be going on much longer than that. But anyways, cannibalism. We don't like to think about eating other people. I, I find it to be uh, pretty revolting. So I'm not going to go into any lurid details. I think we all get the idea. But there's one depiction of cannibalism that's been on my brain for a very long time. 
because there is a statue in Switzerland, and it's a fountain, and it is a fountain sculpture which towers above the ground. And what is this fountain of? Well, it's a half baby being stuffed into a giant's mouth. And along with this statue, there's a sack of three alarm tots slung over his shoulder, presumably for later snacking. The unsettling sculpture is no modern work of art. It was supposedly built in 1546 and it is the oldest fountain in Bern, Switzerland. Bern, Switzerland. Yeah, uh, there's that statue there and I'll give you the name so you can look it up. Um, because I was also thinking about other examples of cannibalism besides that statue. And, um, the biggest one in my mind was the Donner Party, and that got my attention as a kid because remember from history we're being taught these horrible, fearful, fearful things. <laughs> and I recalled from years ago the Donner Party was really a bunch of idiots who made a bunch of bad decisions <laughs> and got stuck in hideous weather with their wagon train and ended up eating each other. That was what I remembered from a child, the Donner Party. But anyway, we'll get way into that more later. I played a little clip at the beginning as far as vaccines and the baby embryo deal. Now, they claim that they're using baby embryos from the 70s and stuff, okay, that two distinct baby embryo cells were used to do this whole thing. Well, they say a lot of things now, don't they, kids? So you want to trust them that they don't have embryos in all the other vaccines? Well, trust them at your own peril if you ask me. So, yeah, they, they, they admit that they're in there. So that's a pretty big admission. So let me get back on track here a little bit. Okay, all you have to look for is very simple. The child eater of Bern, child eater of Bern, and it's in Bern, Switzerland. A nearly 500-year-old sculpture depicts a man eating a sack of babies and no one is sure why. So it's standing in the middle of Bern, Switzerland and it's called Kendifresser or child eater. And Kindefresser, surprise, surprise, is a Swiss-German name for Child Eater Fountain. It is a painted stone fountain in Bern. It's one of the old city of Bern's fountains from the 16th century. It was created in 1545 to 1546 by Hans Gehring to replace a wooden fountain from around the 15th century. The first, the name was currently first used in 1666. 1666, of course we have to have all three sixes, right? Kendi is a Swiss-German diminutive for the German word kind, meaning child. The literal translation of the name Kendi Fresser Renan, therefore, would be fountain of the eater of little children. So any of those words into your search engine and you will go bingo and you will find it. Because all I had to do re was remember child eater burn Switzerland and I found it again. So, <laughs> okay, it's a bag containing children. Okay, there, then there were some um, comments around at Reddit places. So I wanted to see what people were saying about it, right? All roads always lead back to the Jews and eating babies somehow. But anyway, so um, because the org ogre, O-G-R-E, is, is wearing a pointed hat that resembles a Jewish one, it has been speculated about the possibility of the ogre being the depiction of a Jew as an expression of blood libel against Jews. 
Another theory is that the statue is the Lycle of Krampus. The, it's K-R-A-M-P-U-S. The beast-like creature from the folklore of alpine countries thought to punish children during the Christmas season who had misbehaved. According to other theories, it is a depiction of the Greek god Cronus, C-R-O-N-U-S, eating his children, or the Roman Saturn eating the months. Roman Saturn, S-A-T-U-R-N, eating the months. Cronus should have six and Saturn 12 rather than the sculptures eight. Now, I don't know what that means. Um, another theory is that it represented Cardinal Shiner, S-C-H-I-N-E-R, who led the Swiss Confederation into several bloody, several bloody defeats in northern Italy. Huh, Italy. So, um, an alternative theory is that it is a depiction of the older brother of Duke Berchtold, B-E-R-C-H-T-O-L, who was formerly of Bern, who is claimed he was so incensed by his younger brother's overshadowing of him that he collected and ate the town's children, but such an incident is not recorded in Burns' history books. A final thought is that it is just a carnival character intended to frighten disobedient children. Another theory is the eight children, I, I, don't, I only saw three children, but I'm confused, but anyway, another theory is the eight children depict the eight cantons of the old Swiss Confederacy, and the ogre is an enemy trying to gobble the cantons up. This would match the fountain's base, which shows a frisee of armed bearers going to war, including a piper and a drummer. The frisee may have been designed by this Hans Rudolf Deutsch. So yeah, it's also an important object in this novel called The Ogre. Okay, there is this thing called, I looked at, at Atlas Obscura, and they say there was never a reason given for the depiction, but speculation is that it is anti-Semitic, with the statue wearing a hat similar to ones forced on Jews. And one of the comments I thought was kind of funny, they said, yeah, Swiss is well known for knives, watches, chocolate, cheese, and child eating. <laughs> Another comment was, also there were a lot of wild rumors that Jews kidnapped children and sacrificed and ate them in secret religious ceremonies. And another comment was, that's just projection by the Vatican. They're the ones that rape and eat babies in secret religious ceremonies. They just use Jews as an easy scapegoat when anybody noticed kids missing. So they're saying the Vatican is doing it all. Are they eating children? Well, I don't know. I don't know. I'm not going to speculate right now. Today, let's just cover <laughs> whether we think this is even true or not, right? There's a lot with this blood deal. I mean, so much with this blood deal. And it's between this country and the Swiss. They're doing this blood deal with plasma, and it's a huge money-making operation. And the catcher is, is that everybody assumes because the blood is coming from this country that it's all safe. Well, the blood is being bought by drug addicts and very poor people. And so the blood is not all that safe, okay? But all of these things that we presume have happened, right? People presume that this country is on top of these things. So they have this really fishy deal between the Swiss and this country 
over blood, and uh, they're sending, they, they, the people in Switzerland don't seem to know that drug addicts and poor people here are being paid to get this blood for the plasma, which they then sell to their elite people. So they basically are using poor people to get blood to sell to rich people. And it has a million implications. Just talk about reckless behavior, because you realize that these people, they let them give a, a I don't know, plasma once or twice a week or something crazy like that. So you're poor to start with. You can barely get by. Your only means of making any extra income to buy food that you need is to go and give up plasma once or twice a week. Well, that has some serious, serious deals with your system and stuff. I don't think your body is made to shed that much blood. So, yeah, it really is a method to prey on the poor. But let me get back on track here. So there's something with all this blood stuff. So I'm not sure where I'm going with any of this, <laughs> but I'm going somewhere. I'm just not sure where the path is going to take me. So, Because earlier I had talked about what went on in Ukraine because most people would not associate cannibalism with the Soviet Union. But there is that book called Bloodlands. It was a 1933 Stalin-imposed famine in Ukraine that was so severe that cannibalism became surprisingly prevalent. The state had to set up anti-cannibalism squads, and hundreds of people were accused of eating their neighbors, or in some cases, their family members. So I don't know. Um, is that a true story? I don't know. The Grizzly episode makes vivid the predations of the early Soviet era. Many Americans may have never heard of it. It illustrates another fact about cannibalism. It's something nobody ever wants to think about. It's relegated to disgust tabloid voyeurism, and lame jokes. And those all contribute to a general ignorance of the subject. Well, I think I'll clear up your ignorance today, kids, on this cannibalism business. <laughs> Historians and anthropologists, however, have tried to study the history and science of cannibalism over the years, why it happens, when it occurs, and who's affected. It tests the ultimate boundaries of cultural relativism, health, and ritual. Though this list isn't all comprehensive, it catalogs all the unusual things about cannibalism, and you can go wild on the search engine. Just <laughs> cannibalism, uh, all those um, uh, movies about the walking dead, those are all cannibals, right? Um, so yeah, cannibals, <laughs> cannibals is quite a lengthy subject, so I'm just trying to focus here. Typically, they said that cannibalism was named after people who might not have been cannibals, okay? And they said a few basic questions about cannibalism are difficult for historians to answer. Yes, I bet they have a... I'll be, I'll be exploring later in another segment some of these answers they came up with about this story, which seems shaky to me, okay? And some of these groups, they have a hard time answering. Some of the questions are things like, how many groups practice cannibalism? When did it start? And how common is it? Those questions are tough because cannibalism has been used throughout time to describe many different things. That's also the reason why modern anthropologists and scientists prefer the term anthropophagy to cannibalism. That, I just try not to laugh when I say it. So this is the word they prefer to use. It's anthropophagy. <laughs> A-N-T-H-R O-P-O-P-H-A-G-Y. So that's a term they prefer to use, okay? 
There are cultures that engage in cannibalism as a ritualistic practice, and there are also times when people resort to cannibalism during famine. And I'll have some of those cases. <laughs> look at this too. And at times, the word cannibalism has been used to describe all sorts of tactics and people seen as savage. Cannibalism is occasionally descriptive, occasionally circumstantial, and occasionally an indirect ethnic slur. Yes, because as a kid, I remember seeing um, cannibal, cannibals in cartoons. We didn't watch a lot of cartoons, but I do remember very distinctly um, cartoons of cannibals. <laughs> they were always black African-looking people, and there was always a white hunter in the pot, and the cannibals were getting ready to cook him up. So yes, cannibals are really a pretty big deal. So um, the word cannibalism itself comes from the name that the Spanish gave to the Carib. The Spanish accused the Caribbean tribe of ritualistically eating their enemies, but modern-day scholars have doubts that it actually happened. Because the Caribs, I'm assuming that means Caribbeans, were engaged in the anti-colonial battle with a host of European powers, many historians now argue that the cannibalism rumors were just a propaganda tactic by the Spanish meant to stir up fears. <laughs> well, got that straight, right? Okay, uh, cannibalistic rituals could be surprisingly complex. One, and this is an interesting one, the first prominent European account of cannibals appeared in this late 1500 es essay of cannibals. <laughs> in addition to being an invaluable anthropological record of the Tupi people, T-U-P-I people, in what is now Brazil, hello Brazil, the essay sheds light on the intricate practice of cannibalism at the time. Sometimes the Tupi lived with their captives for months before they were eaten. And they sang to each other. Quite a quite a nice crowd of uh, cannibals in Brazil. <laughs> As Montague recorded, the captors taunt the captors taunted captives by entertaining them with threats of their coming death. And the captive and the captives replied in a fashion that was like a song or a chant. Well, it's just amazing what they could find out from the 1500s, isn't it? There's this musicologist, this guy Gary Tomlinson. He's a he's a, I looked him up. He's somebody from uh, oh I don't remember Yale or one of those places. <laughs> he wrote about the Tupi in a book called The Singing of the New World. Describes it as an economy of flesh that passed through the war warring tribes for generations. It was a transaction across generations in these warring societies. Tomlinson says. They were saying, in the future, you will be captured by my people, and we will eat you. The transaction goes on and on. Amazing how this guy, Gary Tomlinson, sitting over there at Yale or something, has figured all this stuff out, right? Okay, cannibalism was practiced in colonial America. This is where it gets good, because allegedly, okay, Okay, there is this winter of 1609 in this country, okay, 1609, notice all those threes, and allegedly it was called the winter of starvation or something like that. Anyway, it's a really big deal. But anyway, so um, it happened 1609, okay, and in 2013, archaeologists revealed they found evidence of cannibalism. <laughs> Let me start over. 
In 2013, archaeologists revealed they'd found evidence of cannibalism in colonial Jamestown, an indication of just how desperate early colonial life had been. Specifically, they discovered markings on the skull of a 14-year-old girl that strongly indicated she'd been eaten by settlers during a particularly difficult winter of 1609. Well, people are just geniuses, aren't they? Um, it was more concrete evidence for something historians had read stories about for years. This Howard Zen person in his book, an expert, he exerted in his book, in a people's history of the United States, it was a government report that painted a grim picture of that winter. Yeah, it sounds pretty grim if they were eating that girl up, right? Insufferable hunger to eat those things which nature most abhorred. The flesh and ex excrements of man, as well as our own nation. Uh, I don't know what that means. Anyway, so yeah, big deal. And then also they claim that the Donner Party wasn't just about uh, cannibalism. I go into them in quite a great deal because... Um, they, they said that there was this interesting thing that I didn't talk about in this segment. Okay. Um, when they went back and did the work, they said, what's surprising, however, is contemporary accounts of the trip, that would be the daughter trip, where they allegedly ate people, and I'll be talking about them more later, um, that the account of this trip focuses less on the lurid accounts of cannibalism and more on the breadth of hardship that the party endured. This Donner Party historian, Kristen Johnson, notes, out of the more than 300 newspaper articles about the Donner Party published in 1847, the most common headline is a variation of from California, because that's where they're traveling from California. A mere seven headlines contain the word cannibalism. So. Most of the uh, 300 newspapers, only seven of them contain cannibalism. Kind of interesting, huh? Accounts tended to highlight the fact that the party only resorted to cannibalism after eating boiled animal bones, hides, and even a beloved dog, Uno. What's more, many people were just as interested in legends about the daughter party's buried treasures as they were, as they were the cannibalism. Always about the money, always about the money, jeez. In the 1890s, a Sacramento newspaper reported that treasure rumors made the people of Truckee, California feverish with excitement and included discoveries that would delight the heart of a numinous. A numinous is a person who studies and collects coins, paper currency, and metals, which would be all the people around us who lust after money, right? Where would they be without that money? I don't know. Because um, now they could, now they use our body parts before they get to the mortuary. <laughs> they went on to say, and I'll close this out. They said the treasure was probably a myth, but it shows that the story was considered far more complicated and less purely shocking than it is today. Yeah, it's a pretty shocking story, but it's interesting that they didn't title cannibalism in so many of those newspapers. That that really has my attention for some reason. So, anyways, here we go.
What motivated me to open up my files about cannibalism? Well, a couple things. Mid-July, around the 23rd or so of 2022, and we're right now in August of 2022, there was this report from the New York Times, and what it was was that it was a report from them, and then this week something else came up from Fox News. So I started thinking, why are they talking about cannibalism, right? So let me tell you the two things that got me started here. Um, one is that um, Twitter users expressed discomfort and confusion on Twitter Saturday. That would be, I think it's like the 22nd or so of July after the New York Times published an article claiming there is a time and a place for cannibalism. Users blasted the piece for seemingly normalizing the grisly practice of eating human flesh. The New York Times published the outlandish piece titled A Taste for Cannibalism in its style section on Saturday, written by Alex Beggs. The article provided insight into cannibalism's growing relevance in pop culture, especially in a spate of recent stomach-churning books, and touted one author's assertion that cannibalism time is now. Beggs began her piece with a reference to novelist Chelsea Summers. I looked her up. She writes these weird sex things. Anyway, it's one of their people. This novelist Chelsea Summers' story idea of a character eating her deceased boyfriend's liver served Tuscan style on toast. She then observed, turns out cannibalism has a time and a place. In the pages of some recent stomach-churning books and on television and film screens, Miss Summers and others suggest that the time is now. <clears throat> so then, um, that was July, mid-July 2022, and then August 21st, 2022, Fox News, who's supposedly the competitor to New York Times, <clears throat> they did a show, and you can easily find this show. It is called Liberals Think Climate Change Will Cause Cannibalism. Liberals Think Climate Change Will Cause Cannibalism. Very easy to find. Just type that into the YouTube machine. Okay, so, yeah, um, they're claiming this cannibalism thing by Fox News. So why all the talk about cannibalism? Well, what is it? Human cannibalism is the act or practice of humans eating the flesh or internal organs of other human beings. A person who practices cannibalism is called a cannibal. Remember Hannibal Lecter, cannibal, all these cannibal stories? The meaning of cannibalism has been extended into zoology to describe an individual of a species consuming all or part of another individual of the same species as food including sexual cannibalism. I'm not going to go there today. <laughs> um, the island Caribbean people of the Lesser Antilles, from whom the word cannibalism is derived, acquired a long-standing reputation as cannibals after their legends were recorded in the 17th century. 
some controversy exists over the accuracy of these legends and the prevalence of actual cannibalism in the culture. Cannibalism was practiced, well, supposedly, in New Guinea and in parts of Solomon Island, and flesh markets existed in some parts of Melanesia, and Fiji was once known as the Cannibal Isles. Good to know, right? Fiji. Cannibalism has been well documented in much of the world, including Fiji, the Amazon Basin, the Congo, and the Maori people of New Zealand. Neanderthals, we're really stretching on this deal, aren't we? Neanderthals also believed to have been practiced cannibalism, and Neanderthals may have been eaten by anatomically modern humans. Cannibalism was also, supposedly, practiced in ancient Egypt, Roman Egypt, and during famines in Egypt, such as the Great Famine of 1199 and 1202. So if anybody cooked up this idea of, um, well, eating other people, I would say it's our people here, the Jews, right? <clears throat> because they, put, they, they write this stuff, right? I didn't write this, you didn't write it. So they put themselves... The history of cannibalism, just like the history of beauty and everything else, happens to come from the ancient Egyptians. Funny how that works, right? They go on to say here, and remember, this is, I'm not saying any of this is substantiated, okay? So, cannibalism has recently been both practiced and fiercely condemned in several wars, especially in Liberia and the De De Democratic Republic of the Congo. It was still practiced in Papua New Guinea as of 2012 for cultural reasons, as in ritual as well as war in very Melanesian tribes. Cannibalism has been said to test the bounds of cultural relativism because it challenges anthropologists to define what is or not beyond the pale of acceptable human behavior. Some scholars argue that no firm evidence exists that cannibalism has ever been a socially acceptable practice anywhere in the world at any time in history, although this has been consistently debated against. A form of cannibalism popular in early modern Europe was the consumption of body parts or blood for medical purposes. This practice was at its height during the 17th century although as late as the second half of the 19th century, some peasants attending were recorded to have been attended, recorded to them when peasants, peasants, you know, like us lower caste people, um, they attended executions, and they are recorded to have rushed forward and scraped the ground with their hands that they might collect some of the bloody earth which they subsequently crammed in their mouth in hope they might get rid of their disease. So I guess they're saying that um, this was a part about consumption for blood or medical purposes. Well, you know, not much is different now, right? All these cases of body parts being sold all over the place, all these organ donations, uh, you know, I, I don't know. Anyway, so cannibalism has occasionally been practiced as a last resort by people suffering from famine even in modern times 
Famous examples include the ill-fated Donner Party, 1846-1847, and more recently, the crash of Uganda Air Force Flight 571, which happened in 1972. Okay? Some survivors ate the bodies of the dead. Additionally, there are cases of people suffering from mental illness engaged in cannibalism for sexual pleasure, such as Jeffrey Dahmer, Albert Fish, and then I had to kind of laugh, not that eating people is necessarily funny, but um, they went on to state, there is a resistance to formally labeling cannibalism as a mental disorder. Okay. I talk more about the Donner family further on here, but let me talk a little bit about this Air Force Flight 571. It's also known as the Miracle Flight 571. It was a chartered flight from Malta, Montevideo, Uruguay, bound for Santiago, Chile, that crashed in the Andes Mountains on the 13th of October, 1972. The accident and subsequent survival became known as the Andes Flight Disaster and the Miracle of the Andes. Okay, a lot, lot of movies, a lot of books, a lot of money comes out of these things, okay? While crossing the Andes during poor weather, the inexperienced co-pilot was at the controls. He mistakenly believed the aircraft had reached Curico, where the flight would turn to descend into another airport. He failed to notice that instrument readings indicated he was still 60 to 70 kilometers from Carrico. He began descending and the aircraft struck a mountain, shearing off both wings and the tail section. The remaining portion of the fuselage slid down a glacier at an estimated 350 kilometers and descended about 2.3 thousand feet before crashing into ice and snow. The flight was carrying 45, of course we got nine here again, right, passengers and crew, including 19 members of the old Christians Club rugby team, union team, along with their families, supporters, and friends. So a group of Christians were on the scene. Three crew members and nine passengers died immediately. Several more died soon afterward due to the frigid temperatures and the severity of their injuries. The wreck was located at an elevation of 3,570 meters, which for us Americans would be 11,710 feet, in the remote Andes of a far, a far western Argentina, just east of the border of Chile, with Chile. Authorities flew over the crash site several times during the following days, searching for the aircraft, but could not see the white fuselage against the snow. Search efforts were canceled after eight days. So, uh, during the following 72 days, the survivors suffered supreme hardship. And uh, what happened was, was that they... Um, didn't tell the whole story right away. They came back, oh, I don't know, later on with another book or something and then fessed up to the supposedly eating the other passengers. 
So it's looking pretty weak to me that um, some of this evidence is um, not looking real good, but remember this is a exercise in fear and chaos, right? Because this is the stuff they teach little children. Put them into um, situations where, you know, people's parents get killed and all this kind of good stuff, right? So, um, and then what I found interesting was this. I started thinking, well, gee whiz, it seemed like the Donner family or the Donner-Reed family or whoever these people were, they were cruising around. They spent the winter of 1846 to 1847 snowbound in the Sierra Nevada mountain range, right? Well, the first transcontinental railroad to California was built in 1855. Had they had a little bit more patience, they might have made it there. Anyway, there's a lot about this cannibalism stuff. Go look for yourself. For example, um, you can actually take a look into articles or shows on YouTube just to search for cannibalism. There's different things about countries that actually eat human beings, nine, nine places where cannibalism is still a thing. Uh, all of them appear to have very squishy evidence as far as I can tell, but certainly that is the reason why I encourage you to look for yourself. Why do they want us to become cannibals or even think about becoming cannibals? That is really the question here that I have on my mind today. So tell me what you think. Why all this talk about cannibalism? I long to be where the air is wild and free. It's a little haven just for me. I can let my head down and be me. Just a smile for a start, and it only takes a spark to begin the fire in your heart. Wouldn't you agree? Hello, listener. This is Hachi. I hope you are enjoying the show. We would like you to consider supporting us so as to keep giving you interesting content. Take a time out to check out the support page on the website and please consider making a kind donation. We would appreciate any little support. Thank you. The plight of the Donner family. In the spring of 1846, a group of nearly 90 immigrants left Springfield, Illinois and headed west. Led by brothers Jacob and George Donner, the group attempted to take a new and supposedly shorter route to California. They soon encountered rough terrain and numerous delays, and they eventually became trapped by heavy snowfall high in the Sierra Nevada mountains. Purportedly reduced to cannibalism to survive through the winter, only half of the original group reached California the following year. Their story quickly spread, and before long, the term Donner Party became synonymous with one of humanity's most ingrained taboos, and that would be cannibalism. The Donner Party, um, two wealthy brothers, I guess I wrote that twice, um, let me see, they, um, a new route, Hastings was not at Fort Briggs at the time, yeah, 
So they got all confused. They got the wrong information going. Um, the Donner Pass is in the Sierra Nevada of Northern California, and it's named for the Donner Party, so this memory can live on, right? The pass now represents the most important transmontane road, which means rail and highway, connecting San Francisco with Reno, Nevada. It lies within Tahoe National Forest and Donner Memorial State Park is nearby. So, um, yeah, they had a tough time getting there. And here's 10, 10 things we should know about the Donner Party. Okay. The Donner Party started its trip dangerously late in the pioneer season. Travel on the California Trail followed a tight schedule. Emigrants needed to head west late enough in the spring for there to be grass available for their pack animals, but also early enough so they could cross the treacherous western mountain passes before winter. The sweet spot for a departure was usually sometime in mid to late April, yet for unknown reasons, the core of what became the Donner Party didn't leave their jumping off point at Independence, Missouri until May the 12th. So they said mid to late April, but they left, so we're talking a couple weeks late. They were the last major pioneer train of 1846, and their late start left them with very little margin for error. I am beginning to feel alarmed at the tardiness of our movements, one of the immigrants wrote and fearful that winter will find us in the snowy mountains of California. After reaching Wyoming, most California-bound pioneers followed a route that swooped north through Idaho before turning south and moving across Nevada. However, in 1846, a dishonest guidebook author named Lansford Hastings was promoting a straighter and supposedly quicker path that cut through the Washakot Mountains and across the Salt Lake Desert. Well, we got the guy who started off. So, this author named Lansford Hastings sold a bad book. There was just one problem. No one ever traveled this Hastings cutoff with wagons, not even Hastings himself. Despite the obvious risks and against the warnings of James Kleiman, an experienced mountain man, the 20 Donner Party wagons elected to break from the usual route and gamble on Hastings' back road. The decision proved disastrous. The immigrants were forced to blaze much of the trail themselves by cutting down trees and they nearly died of thirst during a five-day crossing of the Salt Desert. Rather than saving them time, Hastings' shortcut ended up adding nearly a month to the Donner Party journey. Despite the Hastings' cut-off debacle, most of the Donner Party still managed to reach the slopes of the Sierra Nevada by early November 1846. Only a scant hundred miles remained in their trek, but before the pioneers had a chance to drive their wagons through the mountains 
An early blizzard blanketed the Sierras in several feet of snow. Mountain passes that were navigatable just a day earlier soon transformed into icy roadblocks, forcing the Donner Party to retreat to nearby Truckee Lake and wait out the winter in ramshack tents and cabins. Much of the group's supplies and livestock had already been lost on the trail, and it wasn't long before the first settlers began to perish from starvation. Like most pioneer trains, the Donner Party was largely made up of family wagons packed with young children and adolescents. Of the 81 people who became stranded at Truckee Lake, more than half were younger than 18 years old and six were infants. Children also made up the vast majority of the Donner Party's eventual survivors. One of them, one-year-old Isabella Breen, would go on to live until 1935. Good for Isabella. On December the 16th, 1846, oh, what happened was uh, a few pioneers managed to hike to safety. On December the 16th, 1846, more than a month after they became snowbound, 15, at least strongest members, of the Donner Party strapped on makeshift snowshoes and tried to walk out of the mountains to find help. The hikers resigned themselves to cannibalism. After wandering the frozen landscape for several days, they were left starving and on the verge of collapse. The hikers resigned themselves to cannibalism and considered drawing lots for a human sacrifice or even having two of the men square off in a duel. Several members of the party soon died naturally, however, so the survivors roasted and consumed their corpses. In another segment, I have other data that I dug up that, well, you'll have to decide if it, if it approves or denies this claim, okay, so. The gruesome meat gave them the energy they required, and following a month of walking, seven of the original 15 made it to a ranch in California and helped organize rescue errands efforts. Historians would later dub their desperate hike the Forlorn Hope. Now keep in mind, I got this um, story from the history page, I think. Boy, that was something else. So December 16, 1846, 15 of them struck out in makeshift things, and they made it, and half of them got there, okay? So it's called the Forlorn Hope hike, okay? During the Forlorn, Forlorn Hope expedition, the hiking party included a pair of Indians named Salvador and Luis, both of whom had joined up with the Donner immigrants shortly before they became snowbound. So a couple of Indians had joined the group. The natives refused to engage in cannibalism, and Salvador and Luis later ran off out of fear they might be murdered once the others ran out of meat. Indeed, when the duo was found days later, exhausted and lying in the snow, a hiking party member named William Foster shot both of them in the head. The Indians were then butchered and eaten by the hikers. It was the only time during the entire winter that people were murdered for use as food. Well, that's good to know. 
And then they say, not all the immigrants engage in cannibalism. As their supplies dwindled, the Donner immigrants stranded at Truckee Lake resorted to eating increasingly grotesque meals. They slaughtered their pack animals, cooked their dogs, gnawed on leftover bones, and even boiled the animal hide it even boiled the animal hide roofs of their cabins into a foul paste. Several people died from malnutrition, but the rest managed to subside on morsels of boiled leather and tree bark until rescue parties arrived in February and March of 1847. Not all of the settlers were strong enough to escape, however, and those left behind were forced to cannibalize the frozen corpses of their comrades while waiting for further help. So that's when the, all told, they say, roughly half of the Donner Party survivors eventually resorted to eating humans. See, they say this with such authority, right? Okay, well, you'll have to tune into the part that I have about all I could find is evidence, right? Okay. So, another thing here was they say the rescue process took over two months. But that's why those people got desperate up here, because they were waiting around to get rescued. They slaughtered their pack. Okay. So, the rescue parties arrived in February and March of 1847, but not all of the settlers were strong enough to escape. So, after March of 1847 is when they eventually started eating humans. Okay, let's get all these dates straight. Of the five months the Donner Party spent trapped in the mountains, nearly half of it took place after they had already been located by rescuers. Yeah, so one group goes off, gets rescued, the group that's left behind is now cannibalizing things. The first relief parties reached the settlers in February of 1847. But since pack animals were unable to navigate the deep snow drifts, they only brought whatever food and supplies they could carry. By then, most of the immigrants were too weak to travel, and several died while trying to walk out of the mountains. Four relief teams in more than two and a half months were eventually required to shepherd all the Donner Pass survivors back to civilization. The last to be rescued was Louis Kessenberg, a Prussian pioneer who was found in April of 1847. Supposedly half mad and surrounded by the cannibalized bodies of his former companions. Kessenberg was later accused of having murdered the other immigrants for use as food, but the charges were never proven. One famous thing was uh, one rescuer single-handedly led nine survivors out of the mountains. Of course there were nine, weren't there? Okay. Perhaps the most famous of the Donner Party saviors was a guy named John Stark. A Berlin... I'm reading from their backstory. This, this, this story... I'm sorry. I, I don't think anybody... You know, spoiler alert. I don't think anybody really got eaten. And I don't think this story is true. But this really... In my world, this is the backstory of all backstories, okay? So, okay, this John Stark guy, he was a burly California settler who took part in the third-party relief. They have these reliefs. I mean, it is, go over and look at it. It's complicated, this, this whole thing with relief party three, this or that. So, just trying to... So, in early March of 1847... 
he and two other rescuers stumbled upon 11 immigrants, mostly kids, who had been left in the mountains by an earlier relief group. The two other rescuers each grabbed a single child and started hoofing it back down the slope. But Stark was unwilling to leave anyone behind. Instead, he rallied the weary adults, gathered the rest of the children, and began guiding the group single-handedly. What a guy. Most of the kids were too weak to walk, so Stark took took to carrying two of them at a time for a few yards, then settling them down in the snow and going back for others. He continued the grueling process all the way down the mountain and eventually let all he continued the grueling process all the way down the mountain and eventually let all nine of his charges to safety. Speaking of the incident years later, one of the survivors credited her rescue to nobody but God and Stark and the Virgin Mary. One other fact was only two families made it through the ordeal intact. Of the 81 pioneers who began the Donner Party's horrific winter in the Sierra Nevada, only 45 managed to walk out alive. The ordeal proved particularly costly for the group's 15 solo travelers all but two of whom died, but it also took a tragic toll on the families. George and Jacob Donner, they're the original ones that started this whole thing out, both of their wives and four of their children all perished. That's how they probably got it named after them versus the other people, right? Because, anyway, pioneer William Eddy, meanwhile, lost his wife and his two kids. Nearly a dozen families who made up Donner Wagon Train, but only two, the Reeds and the Breens, managed to arrive in California without suffering a single death. And we started this whole thing out with the Reeds and the Daughters, right? They were the ones at the back of this wagon train, boy. So, yeah, I, this goes on the... Um, how they made it to Salt Lake, the snowfall, and the whole tragic event is more than we want to know right now. So yes, this gives you uh, part of the story about um, what the historians consider some of the key events. And remember also, this is what is being taught in school. So I don't you know, I don't remember a lot about what I learned in school, but I do remember the childhood horror of reading about the Donner family. So, you know, there's there's a lot that goes into the fear and all this and these and these incidents, right? And the thing to always keep in mind is that other people, perhaps a lot of very evil other people, are the ones who actually write this stuff up and do in fact cook it up for us to get on our get into our brains this fear of the unknown right family leaves goes on this trip might everybody ends up alive people are eating other people yeah it, it comes up with some pretty crazy scenarios in kids heads so yeah meant to horrify and create fear and chaos that's what it is
Did you know that cannibalism used to be a popular medical remedy? That's right. In the 17th century, well before Advil, Europeans would ingest ground-up mummies for headaches. And human fat, blood, and bone were used to treat everything from gout to nosebleeds. Yet cannibalism is largely absent and morally frowned upon today. But let's forget the social quagmire. There are plenty of reasons why you shouldn't eat people these days. For starters, we now know that human meat is a surprisingly low source of calories compared to other red meat. According to one study, human muscle contains about 1,300 calories per kilogram. That's less than beef and nothing compared to bear and boar meat. Now, you might think this would actually make human burgers a great low-cal alternative. Until you remember, you're probably trying to eat humans because you're starving to death. So, low-cal is the opposite of what you want. Plus, it's not worth taking the risk, if you could help it. Turns out, we carry some pretty nasty diseases that make 24-hour food poisoning look like the sniffles. Eat someone raw, and you risk contracting any blood-borne diseases they carry. But even if you cook the meat, it still won't always go so well for you. Case in point are the foray people of Papua New Guinea. They would eat the body and brain of deceased family members out of cultural tradition. But that practice stopped after hundreds of people died in the 1950s and 60s from an otherwise rare neurological disorder, which they contracted from eating infected human brains. The brain tissue contained prions, deadly misfolded proteins that form spongy holes in your brain. They survive the cooking process and, if eaten, are highly contagious. On the legal side of things, cannibalism falls into a gray area. Oddly enough, cannibalism itself isn't illegal in the US or UK. But you probably committed some crime along the way to get that slab of meat. Grave robbing, desecration of a corpse, murder, and maybe all of the above. One exception that won't put you behind bars is if you eat yourself. Yep, that's a thing. It's called auto-cannibalism. The most common example today, called placentophagy, is when a woman eats her placenta after giving birth. The idea is that it could raise energy levels and reduce the risk of postpartum depression by stabilizing hormones. But the science is still out on whether there's any real benefit. Regardless, this ancient practice has recently found new life in Western culture. Kim Kardashian and Alicia Silverstone have reportedly done it. And there are numerous U.S. companies that will grind your placenta into a powder so you could take it like any other vitamin supplement. But the CDC warns that even this cutting-edge form of cannibalism is a bad idea because it could transfer harmful bacteria from mother to child. So if you have a hankering for human, maybe try some pork instead. After all, that's what we taste like. Oh, wait, wait, I mean, according to cannibals...
Okay, what is the proof of so-called cannibalism on the Donner Trail? Well, it was the spring of 1846, almost 500 wagons headed west. At the rear of the train, a group of nine wagons contained 32 members of the Reed and Donner families and their employees, which left on May the 12th. Five, three. Pretty rugged people because um, George Donner, in early 1846, was about 60 years old, and his 44-year-old wife, Tamson, 44-year-old wife, their three daughters, Frances, six, Georgia, four, and Eliza, three, and George's daughters from a previous marriage, Aletha, 14, and Leanne, 12, and George as well. It gets kind of complicated, this list. But anyway, so you get the picture. So a bunch of uh, packed into these wagons. Such a shame. Could have waited a couple more years and the trains would have been rolling. This Reed guy, there's um, two families here, the Reed family and the um, Donner family. Okay, so you'll hear different words. You'll hear Reed and Donner. James F. Reed was 45 at the time. He emigrated from Ireland and his widow, with his widowed mother during childhood and moved to Illinois in the 1820s. He was accompanied on the journey by his wife, Margaret, who was 32, stepdaughter, Virginia, who was 13, daughter, Martha Jane, also known as Patty, 8 years old, sons, James and Thomas, five and three, Sarah Keys, Margaret Reed's mother. Oh, Margaret Reed's mother was in her advanced stages. Okay, so let's get to the good part here, kids. There are these claims of cannibalism. And what are these claims and how do they hold up? Although some survivors disputed the accounts of cannibalism, Charles McGlashan who corresponded with many of the survivors over a 40-year period documented many recollections that it occurred. Some correspondents were not forthcoming, approaching their participation with shame, but others eventually spoke about it freely. McGlashan, in his 1879 book, History of the Donner Party, declined to include some of the more morbid details such as the suffering of the children and infants before death, or how Mrs. Murphy, according to George Donner, gave up, lie down on her bed, and face the wall when the last of the children left in the third relief. He also neglected to mention any cannibalism at Alder Creek. The same year McLash's book was published, Georgia Donner wrote to him to clarify some points, saying that human flesh was prepared for people in both tents at Alder Creek, but to her recollection, she was four years old during the winter of 1846-1847. To her recollection, and she was four years old, and she recalled this years later, okay, it was only given to the youngest children. Father was crying and did not look at us the entire time, and we little ones felt we could not help it. There was nothing else, she also, re she also remembered that Elizabeth Donner, Jacob's wife, announced one morning that she had cooked the arm 
of Samuel Shoemaker, a 25-year-old teamster. So I guess Jacob's wife just announced one morning that she cooked this guy's arm, this 25-year-old teamster. Eliza Donner Houghton, in her 1911 account of the ordeal, did not mention any cannibalism at Alder Creek. Archaeological findings at the Alder Creek camp proved inconclusive for evidence of cannibalism. None of the bones tested at the Alder Creek cooking hearth could be identified with certainty as human. Boy, that's a relief. <laughs> now that they terrorized how many generations of children with this story, <laughs> so let me get back to this story. Okay, so let me get back here. Who is this person? Um, this rare person. I lost track of who they are. They said that uh, they have all these analysts, <laughs> especially. According to this rare Rick person, they only cook, only cooked bones would be preserved. <clears throat> so I guess we're talking raw. <coughs> Excuse me, <laughs> raw raw meat. Um, there's something about this raw meat, and there really is some reason why I'm looking at all this. I'm just not totally connected there yet. Okay, um, so now we're now we're obviously indicating that uh, if they're looking for a cooked bones, only cooked bones will be preserved. So what they're indicating is um, it's unlikely that the Donner Party members would have needed to cook human bones. Well, that's cleared that up. Okay, but then there was this other account, this Eliza. Farnham's 1856 account of the Donner Party was largely based on an interview with some Margaret Breen, who must have been on the trail. Her, her vision details the ordeals of the Graves and Breen families after J James Reed. They have these different reliefs, okay? Just trying, just trying to, if you go look at Anywhere, look at the timeline of the Donner Party, and they have literally, and I mean literally, a minute-by-minute, day-by-day, blow-by-blow account of when this supposedly happened, okay? So I'm just trying to tell you what I had on my timeline here, just about getting everybody really confused. So, anyway, so this woman, Eliza Farham, had an 1857 account, 1856 account, okay, um, they said that she detailed the ordeals of the Graves and Breen families after James Reed and the second relief left them in the snow pit, okay? According to Farham, that would be Eliza Farham in her 1856 account, seven-year-old Mary Donner <clears throat> suggested to the others that they should eat Isaac Donner. They should eat Isaac Donner, Franklin Graves Jr., and Elizabeth Graves because the Donners had already begun eating the others at Alder Creek, including Mary's father, Jacob. Well, this gets kind of confusing. Um, so, this seven-year-old girl, um, seven-year-old Mary Donner <coughs> suggests, suggests, okay, I don't know where the evidence is, but this kid suggests this, okay. But then Mary Breen, Margaret Breen, insisted that she and her family did not cannibalize the dead. Um, but Kristen Johnson, Ethan Rarick, and Joseph King, whose account is sympathetic to the Breen family, 
do not consider it credible that the brains who had been without food for nine days <clears throat> would have been able to survive without eating human flesh. So they had not been, they do not, they did not find it, do not find it credible. Okay, so, yeah, I don't know, it gets, it gets more and more, I tried to just pull out parts that weren't like highly just insane, but anyway, okay, there was another <clears throat> account published by some person called H.A. Wise in 1847. They talked about this person called Jean Baptiste Trudeau, boasted of his own heroism, but also spoke in lurid detail of eating Jacob Donner and said he had eaten a baby raw. <clears throat> so this Jean Baptiste Trudeau tells this wise person in 1847 that he ate this stuff. Okay. Many years later, Trudeau met Eliza Donner Hutton, that was her married name, but her name was... Many years later, Trudeau met Eliza Donner Hutton, Houghton and denied cannibalizing anyone. He reiterated that in an interview with a St. Louis newspaper in 1891 when he was 60 years old, he reiterated that Houghton and the other Donner children were fond of Trudeau and he of them, despite their circumstances and the fact that he eventually left. Evidently, Trudeau made one claim and then everybody else said, no, nobody ate anybody, right? There was this author, George Stewart, he considered Trudeau's accounting to Wise more accurate than what he told of Houghton in 1884. And asserted that he deserted and asserted that he deserted the Donners, Christian Johnson, and the other hand. On the other hand, well, I don't know. I don't know. They're, they're trying to say that they disputed this story. So the question here is, um, does any of this add up to charges of actual cannibalism? It sounds to me like it's a lot of people saying they thought they saw something, they thought they knew something. And then they deny that they knew it. So, well, I think the evidence is kind of stacking against us being any kind of reality, but that's why we all have our own little brains to thinky-thinky. Is this version of cannibalism true or is it false? here with a couple of closing comments. I think there's something here, I'm not sure why, I'm not sure what, but that New York Times article and that Fox News thing got me going, but here's a couple things. I'm not going to get into this very much because um, it's that strange thing they were talking about as far as eating their placentia after a baby's born, and I'm not really sure um, if you eat the placenta of a baby, is that a form of cannibalism? <laughs> I don't really know. But anyway, there's a term for it. It's called placentagophy, P-L-A-C-E-N-T-O-P-H-A-G-Y. And typically, animals eat placenta, but is now a fad with other people. Uh, so, uh, 
most of the time, I think the popular verdict on cannibalism is pretty clear. I'm not really sure about where this eating the placenta falls into that, but it's a little bit disgusting. Um, so, yeah, there's that thing. And I think we've also been conned into thinking that we need meat and things like that. Um, the Chinese use the placenta for um, some medicines. They use dried human placenta. Um, for different things. Um, and then something new, the, the CDC published a report of a newborn infected with group B something Stephanopoulos bacteria, likely that the mother ingested placenta capsules. Yeah, I guess they put the placenta in capsules. So. Consequently, the CDC said that placenta capsules ingestion should be avoided and educate mothers interested in placenta encapsulation about the potential risk. Well, British celebrity chef Hugh Fernie Wittenstall, known for his series River Cottage Programs over on the UK, notoriously cooked and ate human placenta on one of his programs. Yeah, if you start to look for this cannibal business, we have been inundated with nothing but cannibals. Well, is this to hide something very simple that they're doing, like with this blood deal I was talking about earlier between the um, thing? I don't know. Just because I always want to close on something very positive. Just kidding. Did you know I ran across this statistic, and did you know that in this country... There was this new study I had in a file, and I thought, well, I'm talking about this pleasant subject of cannibals. Let's talk about murder. Um, no, actually, this is very serious. Um, you know, this country has more guns and weapons than any other place in the world amongst the citizens, right? And it's, of course, encouraged. Um, but do you know that this study found that suicides, because we, we always think of guns in this country as far as your neighbor's going to go out to get you with a gun. You look at them the wrong way, right? But actually, the study found that suicides accounted for more of the deaths by firearms. Firearm deaths have overtaken car crashes as a leading cause of death by trauma in the United States. Globally, most gun deaths are homicides, but in the U.S., most were suicides. And that's the culture we're in right now, so be safe out there, kids. Goodbye for now. West Virginia, Blue Ridge Mountains, Shenandoah River. Life is older, older than the trees, younger than the mountains, growing like a breeze. Country roads, take me home to the place.
listener. My name is Achi. I'm from Nigeria. I am the producer of the show. We would like to take this time out to thank you for your continued listenership and support towards the show. However, this past couple of months, it's been increasingly difficult to produce the show. We would like to solicit for your support so as to keep the show running. Please consider any kind donation you can make, big or small. We would appreciate anything that you offer. The donation link can be found on the website. Thank you.